The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. It's dawn, and Alpha Troop 19 is commuting to war. 21 GIs bound for a jungle clearing a mile from the Cambodian border. American soldiers hiking their way through the sweaty jungles of South Vietnam, searching for an elusive enemy. The temperature is almost 100 degrees, and the jungle stifles even the tiniest breeze. The going is slow. There could be a North Vietnamese regiment hiding a few yards away, and no one would see it. Nobody talks, so you start thinking. Specialist 4 Dwayne Bloor is thinking he's going to meet his fiancée in Honolulu in two weeks, and he will show her the silver star the general pinned on him yesterday. Devaye is the lone medic in the platoon. He's scared, scared from the moment he gets out of the chopper to the moment it picks him up, scared that someday he's going to get killed picking up a wounded buddy. Jorgensen just became a sergeant, but he doesn't like it. He'd rather be up walking point where the action is. He's already got three purple hearts, so everybody calls him Hero. Then there's Lieutenant Hubley. Everybody calls him Blue. That's his radio call. Blue didn't want to come to Vietnam, and he'd much rather be a businessman than a soldier. But right now, he's in charge of the lives of 21 men. Somewhere in this jungle, there's several hundred North Vietnamese soldiers who could wipe out this little American unit to the last man in an unguarded moment. Today, though, it's quiet. A few bunkers uncovered, then a quick lunch, and back down the trail to the pickup zone. Just a peaceful walk in the sun. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Literature and the Vietnam War, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. We're talking about Tim O'Brien today and his classic short story, The Things They Carried. We'll have Mike Palindrome here in a moment. This is another self-contained episode of the History of Literature podcast. In other words, you don't need to have read the story. I'm going to introduce it now, then we'll have Mike come on to preview the story. Then we'll take a break and read the story. Then we'll have Mike come back to share some thoughts. This is a very listener-friendly way to go. It's an amazing story, well worth reading, and in some ways... I think it cries out to be read aloud. It's a story that makes you want to share something. And hey, in some ways, you know, when I read Shakespeare or Jane Austen or something like that, I feel a little self-conscious. Do you really want to hear Jane Austen in my voice? Some of you have complimented me on my reading, which is very flattering. I've been asked to read audiobooks, which was kind of a surprise, but also extremely flattering. I think I do a good... Chekhov, for example, but Shakespeare? I'm not sure I'm the best voice for that. Tim O'Brien, though, is sort of in my wheelhouse. He's small-town Minnesota. I'm small-town Wisconsin. We have similar backgrounds. I'm a generation younger, but I think I can do a good job with it. I guess you'll be the judge. 
We started with a news clip from 1970 from the CBS Evening News. You can find this online. It's called Vietnam 1970, CBS Camera Rolls as Platoon Comes Under Fire, if you want to watch it along with the footage. It's a, a news piece where they followed soldiers into a firefight. You can hear the humanity there of the reporter the reporting the, the narration. They tell you who's scared, who's a hero, who's a medic, and so on. It's very good television news reporting. I'm sure it was essential in bringing the realities of Vietnam to the American public. Tim O'Brien is different. The Tim O'Brien story we're going to look at today shows you how deep an analysis like this can go, how deep into the souls and psyches that literature can take you. I first read the story in the 1990s when I was at the MFA program. It's heavily anthologized, and it's easy to see why. It also made O'Brien famous. He's a good writer, and his other books are good, too. He had already won the National Book Award for his book Going After Cachado. His book In the Lake of the Woods is very popular, his other short stories. But this story, The Things They Carried, will be his legacy, I think. I think it was widely viewed as an instant classic, and I think it has held up to that reputation. O'Brien will always be associated with the Vietnam War. He was born in 1946, the perfect baby boomer year. In 1968, he was student body president of McAllister College. He got his degree in political science and was drafted into the Army. For the next two years, he served in Vietnam. He's one of the interviewees in Ken Burns's majestic and heartrending documentary about Vietnam, which I watched recently on Netflix. He, in the documentary, O'Brien describes how paralyzed he felt about his decision. That's something I really identified with. He grew up in a small town in Minnesota. I know what that's like. I have a feeling that had I been born 20 years earlier, I would have faced a similar decision and, and may have done the same thing that he did. In spite of some trepidation about the war, I don't think I would have had the wherewithal to avoid it. I didn't have the sense of entitlement that would lead me to look for alternatives. I wouldn't have had the feeling that it shouldn't be me that I was the kind of person who wouldn't go or, or who would be able to pull a few strings and get into the reserves. I wouldn't have considered myself an elite or viewed myself as the sort of special person who wouldn't have to do what everyone else was doing. I would have been surrounded by people who did go. I did not think when I was 18 or 19 or 20 that I would have been bold enough to go to Canada or be a conscientious objector. I would consider all of those alternatives now if I thought the war was wrong or immoral. But not then. Then I would have been much like O'Brien, who went off to war, then returned from the war, joined the anti-war movement, and felt at home among them. Let me pause here and say that I'm basically on the side of Ken Burns with Vietnam as, as far as his opinions can be gleaned from the documentary. I wish he'd talked more about the pressures on the presidents because... It's almost inexplicable what they did. They lied to the American people about what they were doing, and they continuously kept going, kept getting further into the thick of it, even though they privately believed or recognized that the war was unwinnable. It's awful. Why did they do it? 
It was a belief in the domino theory of communism, sure, especially in the early days. If Vietnam goes, all the Southeast Asian countries become communist, and what will that lead to? What, what, will we, what kind of world will we be facing then? But was that a true belief? Or was that propaganda to support what they felt compelled to support? And Burns will say they had to do this before the election. He talks about that a lot. With an election coming, why? Why? The suggestion is that there's something strong about being a president who's pursuing a mistake and something weak about retreating from one. Who's weak? Who's putting that kind of pressure on the president to continue with a mistake? There's also something evil about using a war to win an election. Prolonging a war even after you believe that it's wrong and it's unwinnable, but doing so for political considerations, the ends here do not justify the means. And yet, the people who saw this clearly at the time always end up looking like the fools, the nags, the distractions, the unpatriotic ones. We really need to change the way we view dissent in this country, in my opinion. Honest principled dissent. We need to distinguish dissent based on facts and principles from dissent for hire. Okay. I started this out trying to say that I was going to stay politically neutral, and for some of you, that's probably already gone. Fine. I get it. Passions run high. I'm still where I was in the mid-80s, where my teachers wouldn't discuss Vietnam because it was too raw. We had a history class in high school, and the teacher wouldn't touch Vietnam. We ended with World War II, full stop, and the, the teacher said, We're, we have a 50-year policy here. We'll make an exception, a slight exception, for World War II. But we're not going to discuss anything from within the past 50 years, because that's not history. It's too recent. Well, we also had a current events class in high school. We didn't touch Vietnam there either. There, the teacher just threw up her hands and said, it's too current. It's too powerful. It's too controversial. I had friends whose fathers were killed in Vietnam, friends whose fathers returned from Vietnam and killed themselves, leaving behind wives in their 20s and children in preschool. I had friends whose fathers returned from Vietnam and wouldn't talk about what they'd seen and done, who were never the same or who took a long time to recover. And at the same time, in our town, the American Legion ran everything. It was a powerful force. The World War II veterans and their wives were the town elders at that time. They were the heroes, these guys in their 40s and 50s and 60s. They were proud, and we were proud of them. They were the good guys, the greatest generation. The relationship they had with the Vietnam generation was not always a good one. There was tension. There were fights. This was all in a town of a thousand people, a million miles away from any place that mattered, from any place where decisions were being made. In some ways, we were probably closer to Vietnam than we were to Washington, D.C. I bet in 1975, there were more people in my town who had been to Vietnam in the past five years than had been to Washington, D.C. in the same time period. So that kind of informs my view of the war as well. All those years I spent growing up with men who slept uneasily at night, who couldn't hold jobs very well, who smiled through their pain, 
trying to be good dads, showing up at the softball tournaments and football games, hanging out at the bar, trying to hold a job or maybe putting a couple jobs together, trying to make sense of it all, or maybe not trying to make sense of anything anymore. You'd think from my description that the whole town would be against the war, at least by the time I was around in the 70s and 80s, and yet I don't think you'd find any protest or tolerance for protest. We did what was asked of us in my town. We flew flags and attended parades and cheered for the boys in uniform. In school, we wrote essays in praise of America and her values and her freedoms, and that's how we felt. That feeling poured right into the plans of politicians. They knew they could count on a million small towns like mine, and they did, and they do. I think that puts me in Ken Burns' territory. I'm capable of seeing both sides. I'm sympathetic to presidents who are faced with tough choices and who genuinely feel trapped and out of options, and yet I'm shocked by presidents and politicians who lie their way into a morass of hypocrisy and immoral decisions. I'm hardwired to believe in the troops and to honor their service and to see them as worthy of all my gratitude and respect. John McCain passed away recently. I am with the Americans who applaud his service and marvel at his courage, along with the courage of all the other POWs, which is breathtaking and inspiring. I support the troops no matter what mission they've been given. No matter what's been handed to them, I'll bend over backwards to try to understand what they went through and how hard it must have been. I value them. And yet, when I hear the protesters interviewed and hear how they were fighting to end the war early, I believe them as well. There's no reason that I can see why war in a democracy cannot be honest. If it can't be honest, if you have to lie about the reasons for it or lie about what's happening on the ground, if the only reason you're doing all that is because otherwise you're waging a war that the people won't support, then something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong. People have to make choices too in our system, not just presidents, people. So, Heavy stuff. And this is where literature comes in. This is where Tim O'Brien comes in, student body president of his college who goes to Vietnam and goes to My Lai. And there he sees something strange. The people look at the soldiers strangely, curiously, in an eerie way. There's something uncanny about that place, he feels. Something unsettling. Everyone feels it, everyone who goes there. This was before the news broke that my lie had been the site of a massacre, a huge, dark stain in American history. I don't think you can see it in any other way. The tension and pressure of Vietnam pushed a group of soldiers past the breaking point. It was an atrocity. And then, some months later, there's Tim O'Brien visiting the site afterwards, just another village on the map but one when you go there that seems different from the others. He saw the after-effects of that massacre before knowing about the massacre. It's a chilling picture, and he would probably say that it was just one of many things that he experienced that have no equivalent in civilized society at peace. And then he came home. 
He wrote about his experiences. He's someone who had to work through a lot, and he has worked through a lot, and it makes some of his quotes ragged and bitter. He's a thoughtful guy, and this was a situation where thoughtfulness takes you to some dark and angry places. Some beautiful ones, too. It's all there in Tim O'Brien. It's a beautiful, necessary story that we're looking at today, the things they carried. He said once that he's not sure that foot soldiers can tell you anything about war. They can only tell war stories. That may be true of foot soldiers, but this particular foot soldier was also a writer, a writer with a capital W. So when he tells war stories, it becomes something else. It becomes artistic. It becomes compelling. It becomes a a vehicle for truths far greater or deeper than those you can get from a history book or an interview with a politician or even a 10-part documentary. It becomes, in other words, literature. Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried After This. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is my old friend, old friend of the show, Mike Palindrome. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Hey, Jack. So, before we begin, we're going to be talking about uh, The Things They Carried, the short story by Tim O'Brien. Before we begin, I wanted to ask your thoughts on a question we got from one of our high school listeners. This is from a classroom we kind of adopted last year, taught Mm -hmm. by uh, Ms. Sheehan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And she said that a senior had raised a question after listening to one of our episodes and said... Uh, do you think that Mr. Wilson and Mr. Palindrome would consider video games to be literature? And the student pointed out they have conflict, plot, and mm-hmm. uh, character. And I think I would add to that setting. So it's got some elements. What do you think, Mike? Is that a, Would you at the Literature Supporters Club qualify that as literature? So 
I just want to make the caveat that I have a very narrow definition of literature. Mm, you were the one who was so. the strongest advocate against songwriting as literature in our Should right. Bob Dylan Have Won the Nobel Prize show. But but I do want to talk about briefly about how much I love video games. <laughs> and okay. um, the things that draw them to me are akin to literature, you know, the satisfaction and the familiarity. Mm. I mean, everyone talks about like, you know, literature that surprises you. But I think the reason, you know, we go back to literature often is because we know it's coming, but yet it still satisfies us. Mm. And that's something that, uh, in my experience, video games do uh, exceptionally well. Mm. So what type of video games are you talking about? Does it matter? Does it matter if yeah. we're talking about Pac-Man versus a more modern game? Well, I mean, I, I have watched my daughter play Minecraft mm. and, mm -hmm. and and utterly understood, you know, really understood why that game is a phenomenon. But then when I think of the games that I love, there were games that were slightly more intellectual, like Zork or The Bard's Tale. <laughs> more, more verbal. More verbal, more about um, character. If mm -hmm. I can, if I can stretch the stretch that, the Bard's Tale is basically a Dungeons and Dragons type game where you're in a traveling party and there's always a wizard and a warrior and a, and you collect gold coins and weapons and you're constantly trading up. Like you start out with leather and then you get chainmail and. But then I was thinking how much I loved Miss Pac-Man, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really sure <laughs> why yeah. I love Miss Pac-Man, other than I think you know there's something about getting better at something and the self-improvement and self-esteem that comes with something so simple but yet challenging. I think that's what. I mean, I remember thinking Pac-Man was just the perfect game. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, well, that's got it's got kind of a narrative. It has kind of characters. Yeah. Are they inky, blinky, and aren't they yeah. Clyde? Wasn't that their uh, something like <laughs> <Yeah>. that? <laughs> but you know the the thing about the video games and a, a lot of other things is that that to me they just don't ask enough of the imagination, you know, of the reader or the mm. the player, and and that's the thing it comes down to, like. No matter how much, how, how many good movies I see or conversations I have with people, you know, with close friends or new people that I meet that are experts in something, it just, when I sit with a book, my mind is, is asked to do so many things. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I think that when it comes down to all literature, all good literature does that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's the thing. When you try to find definitions, if you describe things about video games that are great, you might be also talking about, you know, should they be considered paintings or should they be considered other forms of visual art? You know, it's not, uh, should they be considered a type of film? It it really, I think what you're touching on is is the way I kind of came down on this, which is it's kind of the wrong question to say, are these literature as if including them in the category 
somehow grants them this status that they wouldn't otherwise have. I think it's better to analyze the video game as a video game and maybe try mm-hmm. to seek out some of the qualities that remind you of literature and to say, oh, this one has a uh, character or this one has plot and to say, boy, the characters here are really good, better than other kinds of video games. But that doesn't mean they have to be as good as characters would be in a novel or a short story. They just aren't going to compete on that level, but they don't need to. You know, a video game can be great as a video game and incorporate uh, certain elements of literature. But the important thing is the way that it works for you, the way that it engages you or doesn't matter what we say, what category it's in. It's about the experience that you have when you're playing the video game. Yeah, I'm reminded of that book, Choose Your Adventure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how um, in the movie yeah. Big, they try to come up with a toy that was sort of like a, a video game book. I am a kind of a um, a purist. Like if, if someone tells me, oh, that play is just like a movie, to me, that's a negative. Mm. You know, or that right. that 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 book is cinematic. I I, I just I, I don't care that that doesn't count. Um, and so maybe when if someone told me like a video game was like a book, I would think like, well, I don't want to play it then. <laughs> yeah. Although like when you read a wild book, sometimes you think, man, the experience of reading that was like being in a video game. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's a that's an example of where the question is is shifted around. But anyway, great question. A lot of room for thought there. And I think there is definitely room to enjoy both literature and video games, maybe enjoy the literary qualities of video games, and then go back to the literature to enjoy the literary qualities of literature. Agreed. So let's move on to the things they carried. Uh, which is a short story. This is going to be another self-contained episode of the History of Literature where I will be reading the story in the middle. So let's start out with kind of an introduction for the readers. And this is one where I'm not, as I was going through my notes, I wasn't sure that I should say anything about the story before we read it. But maybe we could just uh, start with where you were when you first read this story. So I was in my late 20s back in New York after college reading it and I think I felt a little pressure because mm. everyone I knew had read it. Mm-hmm. I think I held off reading it because I, I vaguely remember I, I went through sort of like an anti-short story phase. Right. <laughs> so. Wasn't that like a 20-year phase? <laughs> <laughs> like why why bother with getting into these characters <laughs> when it's going to be over in 17 pages so um there was a you might not remember this early on we had an episode about this and i said yeah you've often disparaged short stories and i was trying to come up with some of the reasons that you had given and you said they're too short <laughs> <laughs> but my but um i i have returned to it since and i it was funny because I felt like I had read it many more times than I had. Mm-hmm. I had only read it twice. You know, it's it's really about the myth of this story. And the idea of the story is so strong that you, you can sort of feel like you've read it 10 times. Well, and there's kind of a feeling 
I don't know if this is like listening. Maybe I should bring Bob Dylan back in. But when you listen to a song, a Bob Dylan song, some of his best songs, and you feel like you've heard it before, like it's some kind of classic. Yeah. Oh, is this like a song that we we learn in in kindergarten or is this like an old American folk song or it it has a kind of timeless quality and when you read the things they carried it doesn't feel fresh and exciting so much as you think oh yeah this is as I started reading it I had the feeling like I was reading a classic even from the first or second paragraph even though I think it was published in 1990 but yeah. it just felt like it was decades old already and that it was the way mm-hmm. writers wrote about war is you you focus on objects, but then you also introduce the people and that the things they carry can be both tangible and intangible objects and can be things like guilt and fear as well as, you know, just a, a catalog and itemization of the military items that they're carrying as well. I don't know. It just, he struck upon such a great vehicle for uh, getting the experience of Vietnam and the emotion of Vietnam and the, the, the mentality of a soldier all through this, uh, I want to say device yeah. that he developed. It's so strong. It's such a great idea that it feels like, it's, you know, much older than this story actually is. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I was shocked to, to to check the date and see that it was written in 1990. Yeah. And we should probably say that we're, um, I think I'm going to talk about this a little bit in the introduction. So maybe I've already explained this to the listeners, but we're kind mm-hmm. of the post-Vietnam generation. We're born, I guess, during yeah. the war. Um, but it would have been definitely too young. I was definitely too young to remember more than maybe just a an image or two. I certainly remembered the people who had come home and the fathers of my friends who had been there and the aftermath of it had quite a a vivid presence in my youth. But it's not as if I was uh, I was too young to be of the generation where I I had older siblings or cousins or uh, neighbors or anyone that I was worried about when they were in Vietnam. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. Let's listen to the story, and then we will come back with some more thoughts after this.
The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien First Lieutenant Jimmy Cross carried letters from a girl named Martha, a junior at Mount Sebastian College in New Jersey. They were not love letters, but Lieutenant Cross was hoping, so he kept them folded in plastic at the bottom of his rucksack. In the late afternoon, after a day's march, he would dig his foxhole, wash his hands under a canteen, unwrap the letters, hold them with the tips of his fingers, and spend the last hour of light pretending. He would imagine romantic camping trips into the White Mountains in New Hampshire. He would sometimes taste the envelope flaps, knowing her tongue had been there. More than anything, he wanted Martha to love him as he loved her, but the letters were mostly chatty, elusive on the matter of love. She was a virgin, he was almost sure. She was an English major at Mount Sebastian, and she wrote beautifully about her professors and roommates and midterm exams, about her respect for Chaucer and her great affection for Virginia Woolf. She often quoted lines of poetry. She never mentioned the war, except to say, Jimmy, take care of yourself. The letters weighed ten ounces. They were signed, Love, Martha, but Lieutenant Cross understood that love was only a way of signing and did not mean what he sometimes pretended it meant. At dusk, he would carefully return the letters to his rucksack. Slowly, a bit distracted, he would get up and move among his men, checking the perimeter. Then at full dark, he would return to his hole and watch the night and wonder if Martha was a virgin. The things they carried were largely determined by necessity. Among the necessities or near necessities were P-38 can openers, pocket knives, heat tabs, wrist watches, dog tags, mosquito repellent, chewing gum, candy, cigarettes, salt tablets, packets of Kool-Aid, lighters, matches, sewing kits, military payment certificates, sea rations, and two or three canteens of water. Together, these items weighed between 15 and 20 pounds, depending upon a man's habits or rate of metabolism. Henry Dobbins, who was a big man, carried extra rations. He was especially fond of canned peaches in heavy syrup over pound cake. Dave Jensen, who practiced field hygiene, carried a toothbrush, dental floss, and several hotel-sized bars of soap he'd stolen on R&R in Sydney, Australia. Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers until he was shot in the head outside the village of Tan Kay in mid-April. By necessity, and because it was SOP, they all carried steel helmets that weighed five pounds, including the liner and camouflage cover. They carried the standard fatigue jackets and trousers. Very few carried underwear. On their feet, they carried jungle boots, 2.1 pounds, and Dave Jensen carried three pairs of socks and a can of Dr. Scholl's foot powder as a precaution against trench foot. Until he was shot, Ted Lavender carried six or seven ounces of premium dope, which for him was a necessity. Mitchell Sanders, the RTO, carried condoms. Norman Bowker carried a diary. Rat Kiley carried comic books. Kiowa, a devout Baptist, carried an illustrated New Testament that had been presented to him by his father, who taught Sunday school in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. As a hedge against bad times, however, Kiowa also carried his grandmother's distrust of the white man, his grandfather's old hunting hatchet. Necessity dictated. Because the land was mined and booby-trapped, it was SOP for each man to carry a steel-centered, nylon-covered flak jacket, which weighed 6.7 pounds, 
but which on hot days seemed much heavier. Because you could die so quickly, each man carried at least one large compress bandage, usually in the helmet band, for easy access. Because the nights were cold, and because the monsoons were wet, each carried a green plastic poncho that could be used as a raincoat or ground sheet or makeshift tent. With its quilted liner, the poncho weighed almost two pounds, but it was worth every ounce. In April, for instance, when Ted Lavender was shot, they used his poncho to wrap him up, then to carry him across the paddy, then to lift him into the chopper that took him away. They were called legs, or grunts. To carry something was to hump it, as when Lieutenant Jimmy Cross humped his love for Martha up the hills and through the swamps. In its intransitive form, to hump meant to walk or to march, but it implied burdens far beyond the intransitive. Almost everyone humped photographs. In his wallet, Lieutenant Cross carried two photographs of Martha. The first was a coat of color snapshot signed Love, though he knew better. She stood against a brick wall. Her eyes were gray and neutral, her lips slightly open as she stared straight on at the camera. At night, sometimes, Lieutenant Cross wondered who had taken the picture, because he knew she had boyfriends, because he loved her so much, and because he could see the shadow of the picture-taker spreading out against the brick wall. The second photograph had been clipped from the 1968 Mount Sebastian yearbook. It was an action shot, women's volleyball, and Martha was bent horizontal to the floor, reaching, the palms of her hands in sharp focus, the tongue taut, the expression frank and competitive. There was no visible sweat. She wore white gym shorts. Her legs, he thought, were almost certainly the legs of a virgin, dry and without hair, the left knee cocked and carrying her entire weight, which was just over 100 pounds. Lieutenant Cross remembered touching that left knee. A dark theater, he remembered, and the movie was Bonnie and Clyde, and Martha wore a tweed skirt, and during the final scene, when he touched her knee, she turned and looked at him in a sad, sober way that made him pull his hand back. But he would always remember the feel of the tweed skirt, and the knee beneath it, and the sound of the gunfire that killed Bonnie and Clyde. How embarrassing it was. How slow and oppressive. He remembered kissing her goodnight at the dorm door. Right then, he thought he should have done something brave. He should have carried her up the stairs to her room and tied her to the bed and touched that left knee all night long. He should have risked it. Whenever he looked at the photographs, he thought of new things he should have done. What they carried was partly a function of rank, partly of field specialty. As a first lieutenant and platoon leader, Jimmy Cross carried a compass, maps, code books, binoculars, and a forty-five caliber pistol that weighed 2.9 pounds, fully loaded. He carried a strobe light and the responsibility for the lives of his men. As an RTO, Mitchell Sanders carried the PRC-25 radio, a killer, 26 pounds with its battery. As a medic, Rat Kylie carried a canvas satchel filled with morphine and plasma and malaria tablets and surgical tape and comic books and all the things a medic must carry, including M&Ms for especially bad wounds, for a total of nearly 20 pounds. As a big man, therefore a machine gunner, Henry Dobbins carried the M60, which weighed 23 pounds unloaded, but which was almost always loaded. 
In addition, Dobbins carried between 10 and 15 pounds of ammunition draped in belts across his chest and shoulders. As PFCs or SPEC-4s, most of them were common grunts and carried the standard M16 gas-operated assault rifle. The weapon weighed 7.5 pounds unloaded, 8.2 pounds with its full 20-round magazine. Depending on numerous factors, such as topography and psychology, the rifleman carried anywhere from 12 to 20 magazines, usually in cloth bandoliers, adding on another 8.4 pounds at minimum, 14 pounds at maximum. When it was available, they also carried M16 maintenance gear, rods and steel brushes and swabs and tubes of LSA oil, all of which weighed about a pound. Among the grunts, some carried the M79 grenade launcher, 5.9 pounds unloaded, a reasonably light weapon except for the ammunition, which was heavy. A single round weighed 10 ounces. The typical load was 25 rounds. But Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried 34 rounds when he was shot and killed outside Than K, and he went down under an exceptional burden. More than 20 pounds of ammunition, plus the flak jacket and helmet and rations and water and toilet paper and tranquilizers and all the rest, plus the unweighed fear. He was dead weight. There was no twitching or flopping. Kiowa, who saw it happen, said it was like watching a rock fall, or a big sandbag or something, just boom, then down. Not like the movies where the dead guy rolls around and does fancy spins and goes ass over tea kettle. Not like that, Kiowa said. The poor bastard just flat fuck fell. Boom. Down. Nothing else. It was a bright morning in mid-April. Lieutenant Cross felt the pain. He blamed himself. They stripped off Lavender's canteens and ammo, all the heavy things, and Rat Kylie said the obvious. The guy's dead. And Mitchell Sanders used his radio to report one U.S. KIA and to request a chopper. Then they wrapped Lavender in his poncho. They carried him out to a dry paddy, established security, and sat smoking the dead man's dope until the chopper came. Lieutenant Cross kept to himself. He pictured Martha's smooth young face, thinking he loved her more than anything, more than his men. And now, Ted Lavender was dead because he loved her so much and could not stop thinking about her. When the dust-off arrived, they carried Lavender aboard. Afterward, they burned Than Kay. They marched until dusk, then dug their holes, and that night Kiowa kept explaining how you had to be there, how fast it was, how the poor guy just dropped like so much concrete. Boom down, he said, like cement. In addition to the three standard weapons, the M60, the M16, and M79, they carried whatever presented itself or whatever seemed appropriate as a means of killing or staying alive. They carried Catch's catch can. At various times, in various situations, they carried M14s and CAR-15s and Swedish Ks and grease guns and captured AK-47s and Chicoms and RPGs and Simonov carbines and black market Uzis and 38 caliber Smith & Wesson handguns and 66mm LAWs and shotguns and silencers and blackjacks and bayonets and C4 plastic explosives. Lee Strunk carried a slingshot a weapon of last resort, he called it. Mitchell Sanders carried brass knuckles. Kiowa carried his grandfather's feathered hatchet. Every third or fourth man carried a Claymore anti-personnel mine, 
3.5 pounds with its firing device. They all carried fragmentation grenades, 14 ounces each. They all carried at least one M18 colored smoke grenade, 24 ounces. Some carried CS or tear gas grenades. Some carried white phosphorus grenades. They carried all they could bear, and then some, including a silent awe for the terrible power of the things they carried. In the first week of April, before Lavender died, Lieutenant Jimmy Cross received a good luck charm from Martha. It was a simple pebble, an ounce at most. Smooth to the touch, it was a milky white color with flecks of orange and violet, oval-shaped like a miniature egg. In the accompanying letter, Martha wrote that she had found the pebble on the Jersey shoreline, precisely where the land touched water at high tide, where things came together, but also separated. It was this separate but together quality, she wrote, that had inspired her to pick up the pebble and to carry it in her breast pocket for several days, where it seemed weightless, and then to send it through the mail, by air, as a token of her truest feelings for him. Lieutenant Cross found this romantic, but he wondered what her truest feelings were exactly and what she meant by separate but together. He wondered how the tides and waves had come into play on that afternoon along the Jersey shoreline when Martha saw the pebble and bent down to rescue it from geology. He imagined bare feet. Martha was a poet with the poet's sensibilities, and her feet would be brown and bare, the toenails unpainted, the eyes chilly and somber like the ocean in March, and though it was painful, he wondered who had been with her that afternoon. He imagined a pair of shadows moving along the strip of sand where things came together, but also separated. It was phantom jealousy, he knew, but he couldn't help himself. He loved her so much. On the march, through the hot days of early April, he carried the pebble in his mouth, turning it with his tongue, tasting sea salt and moisture. His mind wandered. He had difficulty keeping his attention on the war. On occasion, he would yell at his men to spread out the column, to keep their eyes open, but then he would slip away into daydreams, just pretending, walking barefoot along the Jersey Shore with Martha, carrying nothing. He would feel himself rising, sun and waves and gentle winds, all love and lightness. What they carried varied by mission. When a mission took them to the mountains, they carried mosquito netting, machetes, canvas tarps, and extra bug juice. If a mission seemed especially hazardous, or if it involved a place they knew to be bad, they carried everything they could. In certain heavily mined AOs, where the land was dense with toe poppers and bouncing beddies, they took turns humping a 28-pound mine detector. With its headphones and big sensing plate, the equipment was a stress on the lower back and shoulders, awkward to handle often useless because of the shrapnel in the earth, but they carried it anyway, partly for safety, partly for the illusion of safety. On ambush or other night missions, they carried peculiar little odds and ends. Kiowa always took along his New Testament and a pair of moccasins for silence. Dave Jensen carried night sight vitamins high in carotene. Lee Strunk carried his slingshot. Ammo, he claimed, would never be a problem. Rat Kylie carried brandy and M&M's candy. Until he was shot, Ted Lavender carried the Starlight Scope, which weighed 6.3 pounds with its aluminum carrying case. 
Henry Dobbins carried his girlfriend's pantyhose wrapped around his neck as a comforter. They all carried ghosts. When dark came, they would move out single file across the meadows and paddies to their ambush coordinates, where they would quietly set up the claymores and lie down and spend the night waiting. Other missions were more complicated and required special equipment. In mid-April, it was their mission to search out and destroy the elaborate tunnel complexes in the Than area south of Chulai. To blow the tunnels, they carried one-pound blocks of pentrite high explosives, four blocks to a man, 68 pounds in all. They carried wiring, detonators, and battery-powered clackers. Dave Jensen carried earplugs. Most often, before blowing the tunnels, they were ordered by higher command to search them, which was considered bad news, but by and large they just shrugged and carried out orders. Because he was a big man, Henry Dobbins was excused from tunnel duty. The others would draw numbers. Before Lavender died, there were 17 men in the platoon, and whoever drew the number 17 would strip off his gear and crawl in headfirst with a flashlight and Lieutenant Cross's forty-five caliber pistol. The rest of them would fan out as security. They would sit down or kneel, not facing the hole, listening to the ground beneath them, imagining cobwebs and ghosts, whatever was down there, the tunnel walls squeezing in, how the flashlight seemed impossibly heavy in the hand, and how it was tunnel vision in the very strictest sense, compression in all ways, even time, and how you had to wiggle in, ass and elbows, a swallowed-up feeling, and how you found yourself worrying about odd things. Will your flashlight go dead? Do rats carry rabies? If you screamed, how far would the sound carry? Would your buddies hear it? Would they have the courage to drag you out? In some respects, though not many, the waiting was worse than the tunnel itself. Imagination was a killer. On April 16th, when Lee Strunk drew the number 17, he laughed and muttered something and went down quickly. The morning was hot and very still. Not good, Kiowa said. He looked at the tunnel opening, then out across a dry paddy toward the village of Thanke. Nothing moved. No clouds or birds or people. As they waited, the men smoked and drank Kool-Aid, not talking much, feeling sympathy for Lee Strunk, but also feeling the luck of the draw. You win some, you lose some, said Mitchell Sanders, and sometimes you settle for a rain check. It was a tired line, and no one laughed. Henry Dobbins ate a tropical chocolate bar. Ted Lavender popped a tranquilizer and went off to pee. After five minutes, Lieutenant Jimmy Cross moved to the tunnel, leaned down, and examined the darkness. Trouble, he thought. A cave-in, maybe. And then suddenly, without willing it, he was thinking about Martha. The stresses and fractures, the quick collapse, the two of them buried alive under all that weight. Dense, crushing love. Kneeling, watching the hole, he tried to concentrate on Lee Strunk and the war, all the dangers, but his love was too much for him. He felt paralyzed. He wanted to sleep inside her lungs and breathe her blood and be smothered. He wanted her to be a virgin and not a virgin all at once. He wanted to know her. Intimate secrets. Why poetry? Why so sad? Why that grayness in her eyes? Why so alone? Not lonely, just alone, riding her bike across campus or sitting off by herself in the cafeteria, 
Even dancing, she danced alone, and it was the aloneness that filled him with love. He remembered telling her that one evening, how she nodded and looked away, and how, later, when he kissed her, she received the kiss without returning it, her eyes wide open, not afraid, not a virgin's eyes, just flat and uninvolved. Lieutenant Cross gazed at the tunnel, but he was not there. He was buried with Martha under the white sand at the Jersey Shore. They were pressed together, and the pebble in his mouth was her tongue. He was smiling. Vaguely, he was aware of how quiet the day was, the sullen patties, yet he could not bring himself to worry about matters of security. He was beyond that. He was just a kid at war, in love. He was 24 years old. He couldn't help it. A few moments later, Lee Strunk crawled out of the tunnel. He came up grinning, filthy, but alive. Lieutenant Cross nodded and closed his eyes while the others clapped Strunk on the back and made jokes about rising from the dead. Worms, Rat Kylie said, right out of the grave. Fucking zombie. The men laughed. They all felt great relief. Spook City, said Mitchell Sanders. Lee Strunk made a funny ghost sound, a kind of moaning, yet very happy, and right then, when Strunk made that high, happy moaning sound, when he went, right then, Ted Lavender was shot in the head on his way back from peeing. He lay with his mouth open. The teeth were broken. There was a swollen black bruise under his left eye. The cheekbone was gone. Oh, shit, Rat Kylie said. The guy's dead. The guy's dead he kept saying, which seemed profound. The guy's dead. I mean, really. The things they carried were determined to some extent by superstition. Lieutenant Cross carried his good luck pebble. Dave Jensen carried a rabbit's foot. Norman Bowker, otherwise a very gentle person, carried a thumb that had been presented to him as a gift by Mitchell Sanders. The thumb was dark brown, rubbery to the touch, and weighed four ounces at most. It had been cut from a V.C. corpse, a boy of 15 or 16. They'd found him at the bottom of an irrigation ditch, badly burned, flies in his mouth and eyes. The boy wore black shorts and sandals. At the time of his death, he had been carrying a pouch of rice, a rifle, and three magazines of ammunition. You want my opinion, Mitchell Sanders said. There's a definite moral here. He put his hand on the dead boy's wrist. He was quiet for a time, as if counting a pulse. Then he patted the stomach, almost affectionately, and used Kiowa's hunting hatchet to remove the thumb. Henry Dobbins asked what the moral was. Moral? You know, moral. Sanders wrapped the thumb in toilet paper and handed it across to Norman Bowker. There was no blood. Smiling, he kicked the boy's head watched the flies scatter, and said, It's like with that old TV show, Paladin. Have gun, will travel. Henry Dobbins thought about it. Yeah, well, he finally said, I don't see no moral. There it is, man. Fuck off. They carried USO stationery and pencils and pens. They carried sterno, safety pins, trip flares, signal flares, spools of wire, razor blades, chewing tobacco, liberated jaw sticks, and statuettes of the smiling Buddha, candles, grease pencils, the stars and stripes, fingernail clippers, psyops leaflets, bush hats, 
bolos, and much more. Twice a week, when the resupply choppers came in, they carried hot chow and green mermaid cans and large canvas bags filled with iced beer and soda pop. They carried plastic water containers, each with a two-gallon capacity. Mitchell Sanders carried a set of starched tiger fatigues for special occasions. Henry Dobbins carried black flag insecticide. Dave Jensen carried empty sandbags that could be filled at night for added protection. Lee Strunk carried tanning lotion. Some things they carried in common. Taking turns, they carried the big PRC-77 scrambler radio, which weighed 30 pounds with its battery. They shared the weight of memory. They took up what others could no longer bear. Often, they carried each other, the wounded or weak. They carried infections. They carried chess sets, basketballs, Vietnamese English dictionaries, insignia of rank, bronze stars and purple hearts, plastic cards imprinted with the code of conduct. They carried diseases, among them malaria and dysentery. They carried lice and ringworm and leeches and paddy algae and various rots and molds. They carried the land itself, Vietnam, the place, the soil, a powdery orange-red dust that covered their boots and fatigues and faces. They carried the sky, the whole atmosphere. They carried it, the humidity, the monsoons, the stink of fungus and decay, all of it. They carried gravity. They moved like mules. By daylight, they took sniper fire. At night, they were mortared, but it was not battle. It was just the endless march, village to village, without purpose, nothing won or lost. They marched for the sake of the march. They plodded along slowly, dumbly, leaning forward against the heat, unthinking, all blood and bone, simple grunts, soldiering with their legs, toiling up the hills and down into the paddies and across the rivers and up again and down, just humping, one step and then the next and then another, but no volition, no will, because it was automatic. It was anatomy, and the war was entirely a matter of posture and carriage. The hump was everything, a kind of inertia, a kind of emptiness, a dullness of desire and intellect and conscience and hope and human sensibility. Their principles were in their feet. Their calculations were biological. They had no sense of strategy or mission. They searched the villages without knowing what to look for, not caring, kicking over jars of rice, frisking children and old men, blowing tunnels, sometimes setting fires and sometimes not, then forming up and moving on to the next village, then other villages where it would always be the same. They carried their own lives. The pressures were enormous. In the heat of early afternoon, they would remove their helmets and flak jackets, walking bare, which was dangerous, but which helped ease the strain. They would often discard things along the route of march. Purely for comfort, they would throw away rations, blow their claymores and grenades, no matter, because by nightfall the resupply choppers would arrive with more of the same, and a day or two later, still more, fresh watermelons and crates of ammunition and sunglasses and woolen sweaters. The resources were stunning. Sparklers for the 4th of July, colored eggs for Easter. It was the great American war chest. The fruits of science, the smokestacks, the canneries, the arsenals at Hartford, the Minnesota forests, the machine shops, the vast fields of corn and wheat, 
they carried like freight trains. They carried it on their backs and shoulders, and for all the ambiguities of Vietnam, all the mysteries and unknowns, there was at least the single abiding certainty that they would never be at a loss for things to carry. After the chopper took Lavender away, Lieutenant Jimmy Cross led his men into the village of Than Ke. They burned everything. They shot chickens and dogs. They trashed the village well. They called in artillery and watched the wreckage. Then they marched for several hours through the hot afternoon, and then at dusk, while Kiowa explained how Lavender died, Lieutenant Cross found himself trembling. He tried not to cry. With his entrenching tool, which weighed five pounds, he began digging a hole in the earth. He felt shame. He hated himself. He had loved Martha more than his men, and as a consequence, Lavender was now dead, and this was something he would have to carry like a stone in his stomach for the rest of the war. All he could do was dig. He used his entrenching tool like an axe, slashing, feeling both love and hate, and then later, when it was full dark, he sat at the bottom of his foxhole and wept. It went on for a long while. In part, he was grieving for Ted Lavender, but mostly it was for Martha and for himself, because she belonged to another world which was not quite real, and because she was a junior at Mount Sebastian College in New Jersey, a poet and a virgin and uninvolved, and because he realized she did not love him and never would. Like cement... Kiowa whispered in the dark, I swear to God, boom, down, not a word. I've heard this, said Norman Bowker. A pisser, you know, still zipping himself up, zapped while zipping. All right, fine, that's enough. Yeah, but you had to see it. The guy just, I heard, man, cement, so why not shut the fuck up? Kiowa shook his head sadly and glanced over at the hole where Lieutenant Jimmy Cross sat watching the night. The air was thick and wet. A warm, dense fog had settled over the paddies, and there was the stillness that precedes rain. After a time, Kiowa sighed. One thing for sure, he said, the lieutenant's in some deep hurt. I mean that crying jag, the way he was carrying on. It wasn't fake or anything. It was real heavy-duty hurt. The man cares. Sure, Norman Bowker said. Say what you want. The man does care. We all got problems. Not Lavender. No, I guess not, Bowker said. Do me a favor, though. Shut up? That's a smart Indian. Shut up. Shrugging, Kiowa pulled off his boots. He wanted to say more just to lighten up his sleep, but instead he opened his New Testament and arranged it beneath his head as a pillow. The fog made things seem hollow and unattached. He tried not to think about Ted Lavender, but then he was thinking how fast it was, no drama, down and dead, and how it was hard to feel anything except surprise. It seemed unchristian. He wished he could find some great sadness or even anger, but the emotion wasn't there, and he couldn't make it happen. Mostly, he felt pleased to be alive. He liked the smell of the New Testament under his cheek, the leather and ink and paper and glue, whatever the chemicals were. He liked hearing the sounds of night. 
even his fatigue, it felt fine, the stiff muscles and the prickly awareness of his own body, a floating feeling. He enjoyed not being dead. Lying there, Kiowa admired Lieutenant Jimmy Cross's capacity for grief. He wanted to share the man's pain. He wanted to care as Jimmy Cross cared. And yet, when he closed his eyes, all he could think was boom down, and all he could feel was the pleasure of having his boots off and the fog curling in around him and the damp soil and the Bible smells and the plush comfort of night. After a moment, Norman Bowker sat up in the dark. What the hell, he said. You want to talk? Talk. Tell it to me. Forget it. No, man, go on. One thing I hate, it's a silent Indian. For the most part, they carried themselves with poise, a kind of dignity. Now and then, however, there were times of panic when they squealed or wanted to squeal but couldn't when they twitched and made moaning sounds and covered their heads and said, Dear Jesus, and flopped around on the earth and fired their weapons blindly and cringed and sobbed and begged for the noise to stop and went wild and made stupid promises to themselves and to God and to their mothers and fathers, hoping not to die. In different ways, it happened to all of them. Afterward, when the firing ended, they would blink and peek up. They would touch their bodies feeling shame, then quickly hiding it. They would force themselves to stand. As if in slow motion, frame by frame, the world would take on the old logic. Absolute silence, then the wind, then sunlight, then voices. It was the burden of being alive. Awkwardly, the men would reassemble themselves, first in private, then in groups, becoming soldiers again. They would repair the leaks in their eyes, they would check for casualties, call in dust-offs, light cigarettes, try to smile, clear their throats and spit, and begin clearing their weapons. After a time, someone would shake his head and say, No lie, I almost shit my pants. And someone else would laugh, which meant, It was bad, yes, but the guy had obviously not shit his pants. It wasn't that bad. And in any case, nobody would ever do such a thing and then go ahead and talk about it. They would squint into the dense, impressive sunlight. For a few moments, perhaps, they would fall silent, lighting a joint and tracking its passage from man to man, inhaling, holding in the humiliation. Scary stuff, one of them might say, but then someone else would grin or flick his eyebrows and say, Roger Dodger, almost cut me a new asshole, almost. There were numerous such poses. Some carried themselves with a sort of wistful resignation, others with pride or stiff soldierly discipline or good humor or macho zeal. They were afraid of dying, but they were even more afraid to show it. They found jokes to tell. They used a hard vocabulary to contain the terrible softness. Greased, they'd say, oft, lit up, zapped while zipping. It wasn't cruelty, just stage presence. They were actors. When someone died, it wasn't quite dying, because in a curious way it seemed scripted, and because they had their lines mostly memorized, irony mixed with tragedy, and because they called it by other names, as if to insist and destroy the reality of death itself. They kicked corpses. They cut off thumbs. They talked grunt lingo. They told stories about Ted Lavender's supply of tranquilizers, how the poor guy didn't feel a thing, how incredibly tranquil he was. 
there's a moral here, said Mitchell Sanders. They were waiting for Lavender's chopper, smoking the dead man's dope. The moral's pretty obvious, Sanders said, and winked. Stay away from drugs. No joke, they'll ruin your day every time. Cute, said Henry Dobbins. Mind blower, get it? Talk about Wiggy. Nothing left, just blood and brains. They made themselves laugh. There it is, they'd say, over and over. There it is, my friend, there it is. As if the repetition itself were an act of poise, a balance between crazy and almost crazy, knowing without going. There it is, which meant be cool, let it ride, because oh yeah, man, you can't change what can't be changed. There it is. There it absolutely and positively and fucking well is. They were tough. They carried all the emotional baggage of men who might die. Grief, terror, love, longing. These were intangibles, but the intangibles had their own mass and specific gravity. They had tangible weight. They carried shameful memories. They carried the common secret of cowardice barely restrained. The instinct to run or freeze or hide. And in many respects, this was the heaviest burden of all for it could never be put down. It required perfect balance and perfect posture. They carried their reputations. They carried the soldier's greatest fear, which was the fear of blushing. Men killed and died because they were embarrassed not to. It was what had brought them to the war in the first place. Nothing positive, no dreams of glory or honor, just to avoid the blush of dishonor. They died so as not to die of embarrassment. They crawled into tunnels and walked point and advanced under fire. Each morning, despite the unknowns, they made their legs move. They endured. They kept humping. They did not submit to the obvious alternative, which was simply to close the eyes and fall. So easy, really. Go limp and tumble to the ground and let the muscles unwind and not speak and not budge, until your buddies picked you up and lifted you into the chopper that would roar and dip its nose and carry you off to the world. A mere matter of falling, yet no one ever fell. It was not courage, exactly. The object was not valor. Rather, they were too frightened to be cowards. By and large, they carried these things inside, maintaining the masks of composure. They sneered at sick call. They spoke bitterly about guys who had found release by shooting off their own toes or fingers. Pussies, they'd say. Candy asses. It was fierce, mocking talk, with only a trace of envy or awe. But even so, the image played itself out behind their eyes. They imagined the muzzle against flesh, so easy. Squeeze the trigger and blow away a toe. They imagined it. They imagined the quick, sweet pain, then the evacuation to Japan, then a hospital with warm beds and cute geisha nurses. And they dreamed of freedom birds. At night, on guard, staring into the dark, they were carried away by jumbo jets. They felt the rush of takeoff. Gone, they yelled. And then velocity, wings and engines, a smiling stewardess, but it was more than a plane. It was a real bird, a big, sleek silver bird with feathers and talons and high screeching. They were flying. The weights fell off. There was nothing to bear. 
They laughed and held on tight, feeling the cold slap of wind and altitude, soaring, thinking, it's over, I'm gone. They were naked. They were light and free. It was all lightness, bright and fast and buoyant. Light as light, a helium buzz in the brain, a giddy bubbling in the lungs as they were taken up over the clouds and the war, beyond duty, beyond gravity and mortification and global entanglements. Sin loy, they yelled. I'm sorry, motherfuckers, but I'm out of it. I'm goofed. I'm on a space cruise. I'm gone. And it was a restful, unencumbered sensation, just riding the light waves, sailing that big silver freedom bird over the mountains and oceans, over America, over the farms and great sleeping cities and cemeteries and highways and the golden arches of McDonald's. It was flight, a kind of fleeing, a kind of falling, falling higher and higher, spinning off the edge of the earth and beyond the sun and through the vast, silent vacuum where there were no burdens and where everything weighed exactly nothing. Gone! They screamed, I'm sorry, but I'm gone. And so at night, not quite dreaming, they gave themselves over to lightness. They were carried. They were purely born. On the morning after Ted Lavender died, First Lieutenant Jimmy Cross crouched at the bottom of his foxhole and burned Martha's letters. Then he burned the two photographs. There was a steady rain falling, which made it difficult, but he used heat tabs and sterno to build a small fire, screening it with his body, holding the photographs over the tight blue flame with the tips of his fingers. He realized it was only a gesture. Stupid, he thought. Sentimental, too but mostly just stupid. Lavender was dead. You couldn't burn the blame. Besides, the letters were in his head. And even now, without photographs, Lieutenant Cross could see Martha playing volleyball in her white gym shorts and yellow t-shirt. He could see her moving in the rain. When the fire died out, Lieutenant Cross pulled his poncho over his shoulders and ate breakfast from a can. There was no great mystery, he decided. In those burned letters, Martha had never mentioned the war, except to say, Jimmy, take care of yourself. She wasn't involved. She signed the letters love, but it wasn't love, and all the fine lines and technicalities did not matter. Virginity was no longer an issue. He hated her. Yes, he did. He hated her. Love, too, but... It was a hard, hating kind of love. The morning came up wet and blurry. Everything seemed part of everything else, the fog and Martha and the deepening rain. He was a soldier, after all. Half smiling, Lieutenant Jimmy Cross took out his maps. He shook his head hard as if to clear it, then bent forward and began planning the day's march. In ten minutes, or maybe twenty, he would rouse the men and they would pack up and head west, where the maps showed the country to be green and inviting. They would do what they had always done. The rain might add some weight, but otherwise it would be one more day layered upon all the other days. He was realistic about it. There was that new hardness in his stomach. He loved her, but he hated her. No more fantasies, he told himself. Henceforth, when he thought about Martha, it would be only to think that she belonged elsewhere. 
he would shut down the daydreams. This was not Mount Sebastian. It was another world, where there were no pretty poems or midterm exams, a place where men died because of carelessness and gross stupidity. Kiowa was right. Boom down, and you were dead. Never partly dead. Briefly, in the rain, Lieutenant Cross saw Martha's gray eyes gazing back at him. He understood. It was very sad, he thought, the things men carried inside, the things men did or felt they had to do. He almost nodded at her, but didn't. Instead, he went back to his maps. He was now determined to perform his duties firmly and without negligence. It wouldn't help Lavender, he knew that, but from this point on, he would comport himself as an officer. He would dispose of his good luck pebble, swallow it, maybe, or use Lee's strunk slingshot, or just drop it along the trail. On the march, he would impose strict field discipline. He would be careful to send out flank security, to prevent straggling or bunching up, to keep his troops moving at the proper pace and at the proper interval. He would insist on clean weapons. He would confiscate the remainder of Lavender's dope. Later in the day, perhaps, he would call the men together and speak to them plainly. He would accept the blame for what had happened to Ted Lavender. He would be a man about it. He would look them in the eyes, keeping his chin level, and he would issue the new SOPs in a calm, impersonal tone of voice, a lieutenant's voice, leaving no room for argument or discussion. Commencing immediately, he'd tell them, they would no longer abandon equipment along the route of march. They would police up their acts. They would get their shit together and keep it together and maintain it neatly and in good working order. He would not tolerate laxity. He would show strength, distancing himself. Among the men there would be grumbling, of course, and maybe worse, because their days would seem longer and their loads heavier. But Lieutenant Jimmy Cross reminded himself that his obligation was not to be loved, but to lead. He would dispense with love. It was not now a factor. And if anyone quarreled or complained, he would simply tighten his lips and arrange his shoulders in the correct command posture. He might give a curt little nod, or he might not. He might just shrug and say, carry on. Then they would saddle up and form into a column and move out toward the villages west of Thanke. Okay, we're back. So, Mike, I feel like I've read the story a few times through the years, and I feel as if the older I get, the more I appreciate this story. Is that your experience too? Yeah, I I constantly find I find new things to appreciate in this story. It's sort of like if you're if you read this when you're 18, perhaps more than any more than other stories if you read this again when you're 35 or when you're 60 it's just it, it feels you know different really yeah. different yeah do you think it's life seems more precious or more fragile parts of it have have, have this eastern philosophical take and then there's this very western 
like pleasure mm. take, you know, with his lusting after Jimmy, lusting after Martha. Yeah. You know, the balance in the story, I think also I appreciate more and more because you, you can see that he could have, you know, for lack of a better word, like milked it more mm-hmm. and um, done maybe 40 pages instead of 25. Yeah. You know, and the, the each starting, it seems like every other section starts with the reason why we carried more or the reason why we sometimes carried things was, you know, and there's that repetition. And he, he really did a great, you know, a, a, a incredible job of holding back. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that kind of restraint. This time when I read it, I really felt that restraint. Yeah. 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 It feels, I mean, this is from a collection of short stories and the other stories, a lot of them are first person there. The narrator is a sort of Tim O'Brien stand in, uh, that others refer to as a writer, you know, oh, you're, you look at the, you look at things that way because you're a writer or the Jimmy cross character will say, you know, make me sound like a hero, please. And, and, um, they're different. It's almost as if he knew what he had with this story. And he, I don't know if it's more heavily edited or if he was more careful or if the story just demanded that as he was writing it, but it does feel like uh, it has a kind of, uh, as you say, a restraint, a weight, a, a kind of care that the other stories in the collection don't have. They're a little, They're a little more breezy mm-hmm. a little more a little more woolly this one feels like uh everything is in place i have to confess i've never read any of his other stories mm. <laughs> yeah i almost I, i've been meaning to but i don't know that i would recommend them i mean that's the thing when i read the other stories it's interesting and i'm not even going to spoil it for the Listeners, they can go out and, and seek this out if they want to. But you you learn more about Jimmy. You learn more about Martha. But to me, mm-hmm. it it kind of detracted a little bit. I mean, yeah. maybe that's not, not the right word. But the story itself uh, has such a an arc with Jimmy and Martha that uh, just feels so perfect that, um, you know, in some ways it's almost a shame that that we do hear more about Martha. Yeah. So maybe we should track that. I mean, there's so many different ways we could approach the story, but I really, the more I read it, the more I think, um, yes, it's about soldiers. It's about the things they're carrying. The objects really do give you this sense of Vietnam and, and the sense of what it's like to, to have been in that experience as a soldier. But the Mm -hmm. real, narrative here if we're going to trace anything all the way through is jimmy and martha yeah and so um right in section one we start with martha's letters and we see that jimmy has this kind of um relationship with home where he's pretending he's in vietnam but he's pretending his mind is daydreaming Mm -hmm. he's and we sort of see that for you know, we see that again in section three. We see it in section six with the pebble. 
but he's section three is where we see the photos and we see Jimmy is romantic. He's remembering this kind of relationship he has with Martha. So what did you, what did you make of Martha and what did you make of Jimmy's, uh, constant, um, Martha being a constant presence in Jimmy's mind? I, I, I loved it. I, I love the way he would, there, there's a line, um, I forget, it's like the end of section six where he says, on occasion he would yell out at his men to spread out the column to keep their eyes open, but then he would slip away into daydreams, just mm. pretending, walking barefoot along the Jersey Shore with Martha, carrying nothing. Yeah. It's, just, it's just beautiful. And I, I think Martha, I, I, I feel like she's not really um, a fully realized character, but... Mm-hmm. I started to feel like that was the point that she's this dream and in an ideal, like he wants to tie her up. It's like almost like a weird perverse fairy tale. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's that part, I guess it's the end of section three, I think where he says, um, he wanted to do things to her that like the more his imagination runs, I mean, O'Brien doesn't spell it out, but it's, it's almost like you do feel like he's getting carried away. He's got such, fleeting memories of Martha. Her letters are yeah. sound almost laconic. She talks about, uh, you know, her poetry and her, uh, her respect for Chaucer and adoration for her admiration for Virginia Woolf. But right. he, he really only has a couple of tangible memories of her. He remembers her being alone not lonely, but alone. And he remembers a night he had where he touched her knee at a, I think at a movie Mm -hmm. theater. Um, But it's not as if he's got, you know, um, detailed memories from six years of a heavy relationship or something. Yeah, no, it's uh, the way she comes, comes to life through letter writing is, I think that's, you know, what I, I love about this story is, it, it's so original, but at the same time, it 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 very much is about the 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 sort of meat and potatoes of war, which is letter writing, mm, mm-hmm. you know, and how that's it, it's almost religious. It's a powerful part of a soldier's like sanity. Yeah, letter it's re- writing and and yeah. the photos that you bring, um, the yeah. the sort of the memories of home. There's a beautiful section. Uh, and Tim O'Brien was on the Ken Burns documentary series, which was really, uh, mm-hmm. I really immersed myself in. I, I just couldn't, um, I might watch it again. It's it's such a, a, a powerful experience to watch that documentary. But there's, Tim O'Brien reads from this story, and the part they have him read is in section nine, where uh-huh. it talks about uh, they carried with them the land, Vietnam, and they talk about the oh, dust yeah. of it, and they carry the sky, and then that what I didn't remember was that section folds back into America as well and and mm-hmm. the forests of Minnesota and I can't remember what else it says, but it's like this the steel Easter eggs. Yeah. Yeah, the Easter eggs and the, the bounty yeah. of America. And it's it kind of made me realize what the story seems to really be about. Well, it's it's about multiple things. Uh but I had started to think that, I think it was maybe in section six, I started mm-hmm. to think that Martha was was really America, you know, that that was, 
Mm-hmm. And when he has this love-hate relationship with Martha and her memory, he's really talking about his relationship with the society that he left behind. And, you know, he was a big, uh, one of his big influences that he cites is Conrad. And when mm-hmm. we did the Heart of Darkness episode, we talked about how Conrad has this, this uh, when he ends that, he, he could have ended it, in uh, Africa, but instead he ends it with the return home to London and the way Marlowe is faced with Kurtz's beloved and says, you know, the last thing he said was your name. And it's about kind of the lies that London is telling itself while these atrocities are happening in, you know, to make their society possible. They have um, things going on in the Congo that uh, they never want to really fully address. And I kind of felt like that's where Jimmy was with mm-hmm. America and with Martha. At one point, he says, you know, she lived in a world that wasn't quite real, you know, but on the other hand, he's living in a world a lot of the time that doesn't feel real to him. And he's yeah. in this kind of twilight, you know, all of them are in this sort of twilight area where. They're Americans, and in some ways, they're living in a kind of America, um, you know, in an American society, wearing American things. They're loaded down with all of these American objects, doing something that America wants them to do. They're all united because they're Americans. But at the same time, they're, they're very far from America, and America maybe doesn't really understand what it is that they're doing or it isn't a shared experience. And they, there's sort of the suggestion that when they return home, they're going to be different and America is going to be the same, but the, the problem isn't going to be them. It's going to be America. Yeah, no, I think um, she's an important image almost for the whole platoon. And I love the way she's sort of shared. Hmm. There are lines where he says that, um, you know, he kind of goes over, goes through the stuff that keeps you going yeah. in a setting like this. And, you know, Martha is probably par excellence, the, you know, this, this promise. Right. You know? Yeah. There's that, that where they talk about the great bird, the giant bird that they're all envisioning and, yeah. you know, the freedom of the bird. And it, at that point I started jotting down, you know, all the things that they're not talking about, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're not, I mean, this is such a, uh, so specific to Vietnam and the Vietnam war, but, you know, they're not talking about, uh, valor or victory or, mm-hmm. uh, courage under fires as if they want to test themselves or prove themselves. They're not talking about liberating a country or bringing, freedom and hope to a village full of children or the smiles on the faces of the peasants as that, you know, there's, there's no, there's no object here. They at one point he says that their principles were in their feet as yeah. if, you know, just, great. just walking was all they could do just to keep moving forward. But they're not, they're not inspired. They're, they're yeah. just sort of following orders, which I guess we should maybe talk about then what it means when Jimmy decides to burn Martha's letters and photographs. Uh, what did you make of that passage? 
I think initially I just felt like, why? Why would you want to do that? Right. I mean, That's overkill. You, know, like, you don't need yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I didn't mean as uh, um, uh, Tim O'Brien. I right, mean the right. Jimmy. Yeah. Why yeah. not? Like, you're yeah. going to regret it. You're going to wish you had yeah. those. Um, but then I, I just think that, you know, everybody hardens themselves mm-hmm. in a different way. And if that's what it takes, I mean, you know, I guess that's that's what I was thinking when it ter- when I was saying that it, it's such a philosophical story because, you know, when you read a setting like this and you you think like, okay, I, I always ask myself, could I do this? Could I? How, right. how? How? Who in the platoon would I be like? Right. I would like to think that I would be average. Right. Um, so not and, not scared know, like lavender. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, average um, cowardice, average courage, <laughs> average, you know, fighting ability. Right. But then even to be average, maybe it, it you you make these weird, like, you know, decisions to mm-hmm. just all by yourself. Does he kind of show everyone that he's burning the photographs? I, I forget. Yeah, they... They do know. I can't remember now if I get that from this story or from the other stories yeah. in the collection, but um, it I mean, is, they, they are aware that he's burned the photographs. Yeah. I, I like the way there is sort of no ending, which is, I mean, I think war does not end unless you die or you're, you're pulled after your tour of duty. So I, I, I do like the fact that it ends the way it does. So the the ending. So let's let's talk about it in sort of two parts. So there's the the part where he burns the photos, and the letters, which seems to be you know where he the, his guilt has been overcome. He's at one point he's realized that he loves her more than he loves his men, and he attributes that lavender's death to maybe his own daydreaming or his own lack of discipline that he's imposed, and he sort of is starting to resent. He takes it out on Martha, but he's really resenting his own sort of inability to set things like Martha aside and focus on the task at hand. And his guilt overcomes him. There's a sort of heartbreaking part where he says he realizes that she never loved him and never would. Mm-hmm. And you then get a different. At first, when you read Martha's letters, and he says how she never talks about the war, and she signs them, "Love, uh, love Martha," but he realizes, you know, he knows that's just a way of signing off a letter. She's not really talking about her love for him. And you kind of, when I first read that, read that, or when I read that part early in the story, I think. Well, she's just a, a kid too. She doesn't know how to talk about the war. She's she's just mm-hmm. doing her best and maybe she really does love him, but she's just unable to express herself or unable to face the the fear of losing him or that kind of thing. But then when he has that thing and says she never loved him and never would, you think, "Oh, he's been he's maybe had this friendly person who's been willing to uh, send him these letters and who feels maybe a little bit obligated to because they had been slightly romantic when they were together, but it's not, 
she's maybe not pining for him. And in fact, maybe she would be about to break his heart by stopping writing him letters. Like you realize that, or it, it's suggested that maybe a lot of this has been in his imagination all along. But then you sort of see what it means after he's destroyed her letters and her photographs. And he talks about with the pebble, <laughs> the pebble, maybe he's going to swallow it or drop it along the side of the trail. It's just a, a kind of cold. And I don't know, that, that part of the story just seems so brutal to me. Then you sort of see that he's, I think the line is he's, he's changed love for leadership. He's, there is no room for love. He's talking about his men now that there's, He's he's basically not going to be in it together with them. They're not going to share this experience of, uh, well, this is hard, or this is something we don't want to do, or this is something that seems meaningless. Mm -hmm. And in the past, he would be connected with them. And now what he's going to do is make sure they understand that he's going to be a strong leader, and mm -hmm. he won't uh, join them kind of at their level but he'll stand apart from them and, and stand above them and try to impose as much discipline and, and uh, kind of hierarchy as, as maybe a better way forward. I don't know. Did you think that was a positive ending, a positive outcome? It kind of gets at the heart of what it means to be a, a group of 17 or 16 men going mm -hmm. through tasks like this and what it means to be a leader. I guess I don't really buy it. And so I don't, mm -hmm. I don't impart that much weight to those last few pages. I think once he starts like making all these little turning over new leaf and trying to become more of a leader, I just think, you know, they're, they're safe <laughs> and they, they're just walking. Yeah. I almost like, I almost don't really, what do you mean they're safe? Yeah. Because the because the story ends, so you know you're not going to see any of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I I think the first time I read it, I I just expected more of them to die. And that's interesting because I read the ending as being that more of them probably will. It's just a matter of time. It's it's not gonna it's gonna happen off stage. Yeah, but you feel safe that oh good we're not gonna watch them watch have to watch more of them die on the yeah. page yeah i think the first time i read it i i thought more of them had died but it was just this one guy ted lavender mm -hmm. i i really like the way he he handles his death the first time you hear about it it's just they describe that he he carried a lot of pot and then he was killed it's like a half a sentence it's not even it doesn't even yeah. get a whole sentence it's just a a clause in a sentence, and it's so. I, I mean, I know he was uh, uh, inspired by Conrad, but it's hard to imagine this story being written the way that it was written without Hemingway. I mean, it yeah, it it feels so uh, Hemingway esque. Uh, I think in a lot of ways it's better than Hemingway. It shows how we've uh, could kind of we meaning <laughs> American literature could kind of absorb the the lessons of of Hemingway but not get bogged mm -hmm. down in some of the mannerisms or some of the the stylistic tics that Hemingway had it it feels um but it's just it's plain plain language plain words it's 
a little bit laconic, but not overly so. But it's just matter of fact, and it presents the the shocking qualities of death by you know putting it right into a sentence and not going on for paragraphs and paragraphs about it, but just saying, I think the sentence is Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers until he was shot in the head outside the village of Than K in mid-April. And yeah, then the I next mean, sentence talks about, you know, that they carried steel helmets and that weighed five pounds, and it just goes on to the next object. It, and it's more sophisticated than, than Hemingway because um, it, it does these things that, um, I wrote in my notes, it sort of like tries to do something and then gives up. Mm. It, it, it is very evocative and mood in a way that Hemingway isn't. Mm. When he's talking about emotional baggage and he says, grief, terror, love, longing, these were intangibles, but the intangibles had their own mass and specific gravity. They had the tangible weight. And then he says, they carried the common secret of cowardice, barely restrained the instinct to run or freeze or hide. And in many respects, this was the heaviest burden of all, for it could never be put down. Hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's, that, you know, the way he moved from concrete to abstract to back to, you know, the idea that you could take a memory and just get rid of it, the way he describes discarding they discard equipment because it's so heavy mm -hmm. and then they blow up grenades just to get rid of it. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, that that's like three pages before that line where, you know, you could never put cowardice down. It required perfect balance and perfect posture. Mm -hmm. Right. So. And when he talks about how they're, they're basically afraid, they're afraid of being embarrassed. Yeah. They were willing to die rather than die of embarrassment, I think was the line. I mean, it, yeah. I know from the, the documentary, Tim O'Brien talks about his own uh, almost anger at himself that he couldn't make a decision about whether he should go to Vietnam, that he had chances to, mm -hmm. you know, try to evade the draft. And he just couldn't uh, bring himself to face the idea that uh, he was drafted kind of late. So it was at a point where the protests were strong and there were a lot of feelings already that uh, the government was lying and there, the war maybe wasn't the mission that a lot of people thought it was earlier in the war. Mm -hmm. And he talks about it as being a lack of courage, that, that he went because of a lack of courage rather than he went because he had courage, you know, that almost as if, he later came to view the courageous thing would have been to stand up to his small town and to say, I don't care if you are going to call me a coward yeah. or not a patriot, but I shouldn't go or I I would, you know, it would be better for me to express my, uh, my feelings that this is a mistake. Um, you know, it. It's almost like what he most, but he, he doesn't quite go that far, I don't think, but he really hates the fact that he ended up going out of an inability to decide, that it was indecision that ended up leading him there rather than any decision. And I think that seems to have carried through his whole Vietnam experience, that it was, um, in some ways, he was 
trying to uh, uh, account for or, um, you know, remedy the fact that he went there under this, what he was viewing as kind of a, uh, a cowardly indecision rather than any, any sort of affirmative decision. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that to me, seeing documentaries of World War II, I'm, I'm still shocked to hear the patriotism of young men wanting to go die for their country. Hmm. It's such a, it's such a foreign um, alien concept to me that you would be willing to die for a country. Or like if you were <laughs> 16 and you wanted to lie about your age because you, yeah. you, you wanted to go so strongly that you wouldn't think, Oh good. 16, maybe it'll be over in two years before I get to be old enough to be drafted. Yeah, or Americans who committed suicide because they failed their army physical. Mm. I mean, wow. I was reading about that um, World War II that you had towns where every able young man went to fight, and three who failed the exams all hanged themselves. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That you wouldn't. Uh, that you'd feel the the shame or the burden, or just yeah. the. Uh, that your your passion for going was so strong that you wouldn't say, well, they're going to need people at home too, and you know I can contribute in other ways. That's really incredible. I don't know that that will ever happen again. No, I don't Actually, think so. I, Vietnam might have ended that. Yeah, the the Kiawa character mm -hmm. is is really interesting because you know he has this Indian name, native Indian name, and. You know, you don't get much detail about him, but you get this great little ex, ex, uh, exposition where he's saying, um, mostly he felt pleased to be alive. He wished he could find some great sadness or even anger, but the emotion wasn't there. And he couldn't make it happen. He enjoyed not being dead. <laughs> yeah. Was that in, in section 12? Yeah. Toward the end. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's kind of a strange thing. It's the one section that kind of veers into it's almost as if O'Brien wanted to give the reader a third person view of Jimmy. Uh, but then also just kind of an alternative view of of death and the shock of it. That's the averageness I was talking about before that that's where I fear that that's what I would be in a war. You'd be telling uh, jokes. You'd be dealing with the uh, the horrors with kind of a morgue humor, a black humor about yeah. uh, about death and and body parts and and things that are awful to contemplate. Yeah. But you'd uh, you'd get through it with some camaraderie and some jokes and some grim humor. I think so. I might I might start talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> And now the thing that I think the reason why the story resonates so much more with me is when you're when you're 18 or 20, even 22, you identify with Jimmy Cross or you think, could I lead these men this way? Or you think, well, I, I probably would have been one of the grunts and can I endure it? Could I endure the physical hardships? And what would it be like to see you know, to know that kind of fear and would I even have gone or would I have tried to evade the, you know, all of that is mm -hmm. kind of what goes through your mind. But then as you get to be older, mm -hmm. 
I still put myself in that position, but I'm also, you start thinking about how young these people are, you know, what it would be like to have been part of a generation that went through that, where people your age were going and, and being asked to do this, and, and what it means now that we're sort of of the age where presidents and senators and congresspeople are, are like, we would be the ones who would be uh, voting to send these kids off or to have kids ourselves who were there. Yeah. It really, it gives you a kind of different perspective. I feel like the, I'm seeing it from more sides now and I, I take it with this greater sense of awe at the responsibility of it. it isn't it great the way the story, the way it starts and then the, then you get this kind of conventional start on page seven where they search the tunnel or section seven when they search the tunnel. Yeah. I, I was thinking that, you know, I think a lot of writers would have started with that tunnel because it's such a, it's such a great scene, but there's something about getting it after you get the descriptions of the weapons and the things they're carrying. Yep. And then he strips it all off to get into this tunnel. And it's just so effective. I mean, he he has, I mean, the way he picks what the order of his things yep. is yep. is amazing. And you start to, right when they come out of the tunnel is right when Ted Lavender is killed and you realize, oh, that's, you've yeah. already gotten the, you know, that's all been foreshadowed, but now you get the details of it and you, you kind of realize, oh, this guy goes on this, they have to draw lots and he gets the, the short straw, so to speak. And so he's the one who has to go into this tunnel. They kind of start worrying about him. Jimmy has this amazing daydream at that point, this reverie mm -hmm. about uh, Martha and how he wants right. to suffocate with her and and breathe in her blood and all of that. He sort of imagines himself in this tunnel, I think, and the claustrophobia of it, and he, he melds it all together with Martha. And then the soldier comes out of the tunnel, the, the task is over, and they're making fun of him coming out like it was like emerging from a grave or a zombie, and that's the moment when Lavender is killed and goes down right when they're they're mimicking yeah. some ghost sounds and it's it's very affecting it's it's a little bit shocking and uh but we're prepared for it even though uh it's not that shocking i mean we're at that point we're we're conditioned to this idea that death can happen at any second and i i think that's an example of where literature is better than film in literature you, yes you have to abide by the rules you you created but mm -hmm. you can do a lot of things where without without making it have the same weight i feel like with with film every scene um has the same importance and you can't get away with little like you know offsetting scenes i mean you you, you can sort of try but you know you need a lot of time to 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 set those kind of rules whereas in literature you can, as long as you start right from the beginning, like he does, um, then the reader knows, okay, I can expect there to be jumps and I can expect there to be more background or foreground. Because mm -hmm. um, if you imagine this tunnel scene, I, I'm sure, 
I think there's probably a tunnel scene like this in um in Platoon. Mm. And it's just all action. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was so. going to say is or like uh the opening of Saving Private Ryan. So you're it's this what film can do is just wage this all out assault on your senses and yes. you're immersed in it especially the the mo you know i think saving private ryan was kind of the the paradigm for this and it's changed the way we do combat scenes now but it's it's with the sounds and the the chaos and the you know the movement and the visuals and everything is happening all at once and you realize what a what a just a crazy experience it must be and where you're you're moving forward but you have no idea what's going to happen next and it you know to see that i don't know how long that scene is maybe 20 minutes or something but you you really do feel like it it must just be overwhelming to be in a situation like that but what you don't get is you know any kind of mentality of the soldiers other than just straight fear and survival instincts yeah and just maybe the being bombarded by images and and quick flashes of things as it's all happening at once but you don't get for example the way a soldier is thinking about the war and america and home and guilt and you know, responsibility for the fellow soldiers. It's just a different type of way that that those things are being conveyed. I love that scene. Um, but the, the dialogue that I love, I sort of feel guilty because I don't know if that's realistic dialogue. I mm. mean, I'm, having never fought in the war, like when Tom Hanks's character, um, they're trying to, they're trying to, um, shoot the scap and take out like a bunk, uh, a, a, a machine gun nest that's hold pinning them all down. He turns to um, a couple of people and says, "Let's get in this war." After they've just, you know, come off the beach and a lot of them have died, you know. Yeah. And he sort of like cheerleaders, like in this, right. you know, in this trite way. Of, come on, let's get in this war, like. Yeah, I really like that line, but I'm not sure if th that's as bullets are whizzing by, you'd have the wherewithal to be so calm. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, my guess is some people did, and yeah. and maybe it maybe a lot more didn't. Um, and his and the sergeant when the sergeant turns to him and says, you know, after he sends him through, he sends a couple of runners through. He says. You know, your mother would kill you if you saw she saw you do that. And Tom Hanks goes, "I thought you were my mother." Mm. You know, which I find to be like just great dialogue. But again, like, is it really war dialogue, or is that just yeah. film? One of the other things that's done so well in the O'Brien story, just to give a a kind of another uh, nod to the the powers of fiction, is you see as he's he's going through the items that they're carrying and it's not just the difference between, you know, carrying a, an assault rifle and uh, they carried their fear, you know, that, that kind of um, yeah disjunction, but it's also things like, you know, one guy carries a slingshot 
and calls it a weapon of last resort. Yeah. And another guy carries brass knuckles and Kiowa has a feathered hatchet. And it's right. a little, it's comic in a way. It's superstitious in a way. It shows kind of a desperation that they have, that they're willing to carry these things, even though they're obviously overloaded with mm-hmm. with weight already. But the idea that the slingshot makes you feel better, but it's it's not like a lucky pebble or a photograph. It's... Mm-hmm. It really is a sort of, you know, part of him is thinking like, well, maybe this will come in handy as, <laughs> you know, as a as a weapon. If all else fails, if the grenades don't work and the and I'm out of ammunition, I'll never be totally abandoned without my without recourse. I'll have this slingshot at a minimum. And that kind of thing, it it gives you a sense of who they are and what it's like and and all of that, that in Saving Private Ryan, you're getting their personalities, but you don't get the same kind of backstory while you're in combat like that as you as you might with fiction, where the, a, a single detail like that. Yeah. Or even just to say Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers. And you the, it opens up this whole story of, oh, that's the guy who... I don't know. You can do that in film, too, I guess. But just to do it in a half a second like that in a story... Right is very efficient and and very powerful. I mean, you had asked me some of the f- military items that struck me or the non-military items, which got me thinking about the, the stuff that bridges both non-military and military, you know, like the M&Ms that are reserved for really bad wounds. Yeah. You like, know, or, what the, is <laughs> that just, the idea then is you just, it's like a last that, meal or it's like, like a treat? You get that sugar, yeah. Yeah. Or the moccasins for night assaults. Like yeah, one of right. the soldiers would put on moccasins. Yeah. And yeah. It's yeah, just there's great such a, details. Such a great mixture of of home and making them seem like, you know, these are just American kids, basically. And yeah. you know, they're not some of the times it seems like they're being weighed down like robots. And I I was actually doing some research because I wanted to see if mm-hmm. um you know in vietnam if people carried more pounds than they did in the civil war world war Two, and apparently right. there's it's this whole field of you know there's a lot of studies about what an average sh- soldier should carry and what they can carry under emergency conditions and i was adding up all of the things that everyone carried you know setting aside like the radio operators uh enormous right. uh burden and and some of those individual items I was trying to to get a sense of what O'Brien was giving them to carry mm-hmm. and uh as you go through it, they've got this burden they've got all uh-huh. of this these pounds but and a lot of it's military issue, a lot of it's stuff they'll need for survival. But then mm-hmm. mixed in with it is is not just a few things that you might expect, like photos and letters, but all of these little touches of home or things that would make sense to them as Americans, you know, that it's important for them to be carrying things that are part of their identity. You know, they're not just beasts of burden. Yeah. But one of the things that I learned as I was studying these poundage things is a lot of people are talking about having robot donkeys so that a soldier will have a basically a mule to carry all of their stuff you know like a a mechanical carrier so to free them up 
Uh, so they won't have all this stuff loaded on their backs, but we'll have a companion. Um, <laughs> they call them robot donkeys um, to to move with them and and haul all this stuff, which is interesting. But you know, and in, in this story, the men themselves, you almost feel like the military keeps piling this stuff on their back. You know, why don't you carry? more ammunition. Why don't you carry these grenades too? We're going to need you to carry, you know, shovels and ponchos and, and helmets and everything that, and radios, all the things that are going to need to be carried, which does make it seem like would be very unpleasant just to even walk through a field loaded down like this. But yet they include in their packs, all of these things like moccasins that Mm -hmm. also tell us that they're they're not just soldiers, they're, they're people. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the weight of the things is such an important way of conveying to people just how hard it was. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. you know, if you, whenever I read about firefighters carrying 75 pounds of stuff, I just think, my God, I, I think that rules out like a third of, you know, you think of overweight and also, you know, scrawny people like a third of third of men probably going to be firefighters and you think as somebody trying to put yourself in in their shoes you think well the last thing you'd want to do is run out of ammunition so why don't you just load yourself up with as as much as they'll give you and then when you read that each magazine will weigh 20 ounces and each the grenades don't the grenade launcher is five pounds and you kind of start thinking about it and you think oh and and somebody who's scared might have to choose between carrying 10 extra rounds of ammunition or might have to lose that extra water bottle or might have to you know not carry the m&ms or like it's all um the trade-offs that you would have to make in order to just be able to handle this burden kind of gives you some insight into the difficult choices that these people made. It's just an incredible experience that they all went through. Uh, Okay. So let's leave things there. Uh, We are going to be, this is going to be a fun one. We're getting ready for our episode on Ernest Hemingway and the sun also rises, which I feel like has been almost 30 years in the making for the two of us. (laughs) Mike, thanks as always for joining me on the History of Literature podcast Thanks, Jack Mm, Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature I hope you enjoyed it you can find us on Twitter at the Jack Wilson or Literature SC. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash literature or our virtual coffee purchasing program at historyofliterature.com slash shop. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>